Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 3.8 million members and supporters working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And I'm Marianne Hitt, a climate activist and director of Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign living in the West Virginia Hills. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. This season, we're bringing the light. We've gathered up voices from all different spiritual traditions to give us wisdom on how we can all take better care of one another, this planet, and ourselves in the midst of a climate crisis. And to find the courage, strength, and power to keep fighting for what's good in the world, despite a whole lot of heartbreak. I'm so excited to introduce our listeners to our guests for this episode. It is our dear friend, Katherine Wilkinson. She co-authored the book, Drawdown, that gives us the most comprehensive blueprint out there for tackling the climate crisis. But before that, she wrote a book about faith and climate change called Between God and Green. But first, Marianne and I have some catching up to do. Anna Jane, how are you? doing okay you know honestly I've like had a little bit of the blues lately these are overwhelming times that's just a fact part of me is like what's wrong you're supposed to be like super vivacious and passionate and positive all the time but the other part of me is like these are hard times and if you're a human paying attention then it is okay to feel a little bit of grief and sadness and overwhelm and anxiety like that is a natural human response to these moments But I did want to share this practice in this book that's been helping me a lot. My dad actually gave me this book. He gave all of my siblings this book. As you know, I don't normally read super evangelical books that my dad gives me. No, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) But this book just stood out to me. It's called 1000 Gifts, and it's by this woman named Anne Voskamp, who is kind of a friend of a friend. She's sort of a, a young, hot voice in the evangelical literature circles. She's this young mother of six children, actually now seven children, and she runs a farm with her husband. And she's, you know, she's coming, she's in a really dark place, feeling super overwhelmed. Just all of us have those moments when we question ourselves. Her friend challenged her to write down 1,000 gifts. And so basically, she's developed a daily gratitude practice where she just writes down all of the little beautiful things that she comes across and that she's grateful for. And it really transformed her disposition and went from a place of kind of always seeing the lack and the negativity to seeing the abundance. And so I've been trying to do that, especially on on days where I'm feeling a little down, where it's like just pausing and, and looking around and seeing the incredible gifts and the incredible beauty that surrounds us even in the midst of these crazy times. And it's helped a lot. Okay, I love that. So say what it's called again, a thousand. The book is called 1000 Gifts. 1000 Gifts. Okay, I love it. So for our listeners, there is a gratitude practice there that you know, if you can't get all the way up to a 1000, you can just start your list. 
for me too, personally, when I start to feel overwhelmed, that is one of the key things that I do is I stop and I take stock of some things right around me that I am grateful for. And I try to do it every morning before I start my workday, just to remember, you know, I have the great honor and privilege of marshalling a big campaign to try to tackle the climate crisis. And sure, it's hard and sure, it's overwhelming and stressful, but it's also a great privilege. And and I'm, you know, surrounded by people I love in a place that I love. You know, we talk a lot about climate activists white knuckling it versus approaching the work with joy. And it definitely helps me shift that gear in my in my approach to what I'm doing. And also just, you know, the people that are around me that I love that my friends and family. So thank you for that. What a great way to start this episode. I'm very thankful for you. You and our podcast always go on my list. Well, before we get to our interview, we've been asking our listeners to share a passage, a prayer, something that gives them some spiritual perspective and grounding in facing the climate crisis. And so let's hear from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Melissa, and I'm a listener from Huntsville, Alabama. Something that gives me strength in the face of climate change is rereading great fiction by my favorite authors. Here's a passage near the end of the novel Gilead by Marilyn Robinson, spoken by the fictional character the Reverend John Ames. Theologians talk about a prevenient grace that precedes grace itself and allows us to accept it. I think there must also be a prevenient courage that allows us to be brave. That is, to acknowledge that there is more beauty than our eyes can bear, that precious things have been put into our hands and to do nothing to honor them is to do great harm. And therefore, this courage allows us, as the old men said, to make ourselves useful. It allows us to be generous, which is another way of saying exactly the same thing. Marianne! I am so jealous that you got to sit down with our friend, Katherine Wilkinson. She is one of my climate sheroes. Yes, she is friend to both of us, total powerhouse, and definitely combines the head and the heart, as well as the divine feminine uh, in her climate activism. And, you know, I know this is a season about faith and climate change, and she brings us an interesting perspective because she was raised Episcopalian, but even though she doesn't consider herself devout, she studied religion in college because she said that was just the place where you got to ask the big questions. Then there were actually a couple of professors. It was a very small department, but there were two professors who cross-taught in environmental studies, one who was a specialist in Buddhism and one who I took some fascinating classes with rural religion, which I can barely say the word rural. Uh, (laughs) And I actually did some sort of independent studies with him doing deeper reading on this intersection of environment and faith. So Catherine came to this interest in rural religion after a very formative experience at a place called the Outdoor Academy in the Pisgah National Forest in Western North Carolina, a place that you know and love. And that was where she developed this deep connection with nature and what compelled her to want to go and ask these big questions. But it was through these courses that she took in rural religion that she really got interested in connections between faith and religious communities and the environment. It reminds me a lot of Wendell Berry, who's one of our favorite poets and authors and environmentalists. He's a poet from Kentucky. And what I love about him is he he had a big fancy job in New York City as a, I think it was a professor And he left and went home to his home place in rural Kentucky and has built his life 
in this very specific place and kind of see, he likes to say that he sees as far as he can from his home place. I think for a long time, my inclination has been to kind of tackle the big questions and travel and and see the world. And I missed a lot of this sort of sacredness and beauty and presence that you get when you just really pay attention to to one place. My husband, who's from Kentucky, we always joke, although it's not really a joke, it's more of just a truth that I'm like the big picture one who's figuring out how to save the world and always like has the next big adventure planned. But he's the one who kind of really like tends and cares for the everyday. I'm looking out on our garden right now, which is something that he has cultivated. The practice of paying attention and, and being in the moment in nature in these kind of rural places has become a really important part of my spiritual practice. Well, we definitely have that in common. That was also something we have in common with Catherine. She really experienced that difference between the sort of rural religion and perspectives and then the urban environmentalism. Straight out of college, her first job was with the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, um, but she was not in their New York City headquarters. She was out in rural East Tennessee and Northern Alabama working on what they called at the time their Biogems Project. That was an effort to protect special places, and one of those was the Cumberland Plateau, which is from northern Alabama through Tennessee into Kentucky and is a place that you and I both know and love. Yes, it's where my husband is from. Literally, he... His parents live on like 200 acres that's surrounded by the Rock Castle River. We were just up there recently visiting. It really feels like infused with something sacred and that it's so evident to me when I hang out with his parents and his family who have never left. He's the first person in their family who's ever left this region of Kentucky. And the intimacy and the kind of reverence that they pay to the land, the relationship they have with the land is really, it's something that almost, I don't know why, but it surprised me because I'm the environmentalist, right? I'm the one who's supposed to be taking care of the earth. But when I went to visit them for the first time, I I felt like I was the one who had a lot to learn. and, And it was completely true. We all have so much to learn from people who practice rural connection to the land and rural faiths because it's it's a knowing that is that is intimate and takes time. So working in those areas and organizing and doing outreach in those areas was what Catherine was charged to do by NRDC. It was focused on addressing the loss of forests and converting land away from forests on the Cumberland Plateau. And her boss was up in New York City, but here she is traveling around this rural part of the world, meeting with community groups and mayors in small towns and local politicians and just getting to know people on the ground in rural parts of the country. And I was just really struck by the gulf oftentimes between the big green mainstream environmental movement headquartered in New York and DC and San Francisco, and then much of America, honestly. You know, I was sort of feeling these tensions between conversations with folks who lived on the plateau, landowners who really cared about land and place and legacy. Um, and I just thought there have got to be other ways to to bridge this conversation. And it felt particularly 
urgent at that time because it was the second term of the Bush administration. And already the partisan divide on climate was very clear. And that year, as I was grappling with these questions, a group called the Evangelical Climate Initiative launched. They had a full page ad in the New York Times that said, our commitment to Jesus Christ compels us to solve the global warming crisis. And it had been signed on by lots of sort of prominent, powerful people in the evangelical community. And I was just like, where did this come from? I had been thinking about this intersection for a number of years, but what I had heard or read about evangelicals and climate were things like Bill Moyers take that, oh, well, evangelicals are sort of taking climate change as a sign of the impending rapture, and thus it's a good thing, and thus it's welcomed. So this was a very different sort of message, and it seemed really interesting from the perspective of sort of being compelled by this intersection, but also because depending on how you measure, quote unquote, evangelical, you're talking about something between a quarter and a third of the American public. So anyway, needless to say, my interest was piqued and I headed off to graduate school the next year and ended up doing my PhD research on that topic. And so that PhD research ultimately turned into a book called Between God and Green about evangelicals and climate change. A topic that I know well. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I did a good bit of studying this in my undergrad years as well. I think one danger that I've run in, especially in trying to educate climate activists and the environmental community or just a more progressive community on evangelicals, is that there's not a monolith, you know, like you can't say with any conviction that evangelicals will respond to X, Y, and Z. It's really an incredibly diverse community of people. And so I'm curious what she found in exploring them. She did focus groups among evangelical communities across the South and found a broad set of perspectives. The more conservative evangelical right was not ever pleased with this emergence of climate concern. And James Dobson and others very strongly pushed back on that emergence of leadership. And there were also efforts to combat it that were funded by and led by kind of the same climate denial machine that has operated also in secular spaces in America. I think also part of what happened was there was kind of a grass top strategy, but not a grassroots strategy. I think, you know, ultimately the sea change that happened, at least among some of the more moderate evangelical leaders, kind of didn't manifest through the rest of the community. Partially, I think that tells us something about American evangelicalism because it's not monolithic. It's sort of this fractious patchwork of traditions and denominations and non-denominations. But also one of the things that I found when I did focus groups in churches around the Southeast was that religion could kind of only carry people so far. Oftentimes, political ideology would sort of come in and (laughs) cut theology off at the neck. So people would say things like, you know, absolutely, I think we're called to care for God's creation. Climate change is part of Al Gore's liberal agenda, (laughs) right? 
Yeah, this has definitely been pretty spot on to my experience working with more conservative evangelicals. I do think that there's an important distinction to be made in talking about younger evangelicals, like kind of millennials and under, many of whom wouldn't even call themselves evangelicals because that has been co-opted and associated with the Trump evangelical these days. But many of them are much more open to climate activism, LGBTQ rights, kind of more moderate to progressive issues overall. And then also you have Latino and African American evangelicals who are pretty great on most progressive issues. But I think when you are talking about white conservative evangelicals, especially older white conservative evangelicals, this is a very common occurrence that I experienced a lot, especially when I was organizing in these kinds of churches. One time I gave a sermon to my dad's church, which is about as conservative white evangelical as it gets. And I had them completely engrossed and kind of, amen, uh, yes, Jesus, as I was going through all of the biblical reasons that we should care for the earth. I mean, the Bible is like the textbook of reasons, like God, according to the Bible, deeply cared for the earth. So it's really quite easy to make a beautiful and persuasive argument to anyone who claims to love God that you should also love and care for the earth. But as soon as I kind of transitioned into And if you left the earth, we shouldn't be polluting it with really dangerous fossil fuels that are essentially heating up our atmosphere. And as soon as I brought climate change into the conversation, it went from a room full of amens to just silence. It's unfortunate, but it's just because climate change has been so politicized, it really isn't a faith thing. It's more of a political ideology, kind of your team versus my team. Well, that's interesting because I heard you say two things there. One, that when it becomes political, it's hard to reach across that bridge. But then I also heard you say that younger evangelicals do care a lot about this and are maybe not so alienated by it. So especially for any anybody out there who is facing this in their own family or their own lives, you know, do you have advice or tips about how you can sometimes reach across that divide? I've kind of moved past trying to convince the far right deniers that climate change is real. It's a small portion of society. They are loud. They are powerful. But I I think for the most part, that's a wasted effort when you have huge majorities at this point who are already concerned and alarmed about climate change. I'm much more interested in getting them to actually do something than I am trying to play the rhetorical debate game with a climate denier. But I do think that there are definitely areas where you can find common ground. Like, for example, my dad, even though he is a pretty straight up climate denier, he doesn't like coal. Like he believes in the in, in the Beyond Coal mission because he doesn't like that it pollutes the air and the water and that it you know harms communities. So that's a pretty like giant place to find middle ground. He also thinks plastic pollution is terrible. And and so I, if you are trying to kind of reach across to these more conservative, older white evangelicals, I will say there are definitely issues where you can find middle ground that is productive. Well, that is valuable insight, both for where people should focus their time and where they should not waste their time, (laughs) which I'm sure everyone will appreciate at the Thanksgiving dinner. Um, But I also, so I asked the same question of Catherine Wilkinson of basically how can we in the climate movement better connect with communities of faith? And here's what she had to say. One of the things that I think is really interesting, and and it was one of the things that I really learned from the climate care leaders that I interviewed during my PhD research, is that we are all bringing deeply held values and beliefs and worldviews to this moment and to this topic. I think sometimes 
faith communities have better practice and better language for identifying that, speaking to that. I think it's one of the things that those of us who work on these issues from a ostensibly secular perspective or approach can can learn from which is to reflect on the the values and beliefs that we're bringing to this when we do that we are better equipped to have conversations across divides right or across communities that see themselves as different from one another. And sometimes I think that it is in those more deeply held values and beliefs that we find the potential for common ground that can be very hard to find if we jump right into carbon taxes and <laughs> and electoral politics and and these sorts of things. So I think that's one of the areas that's promising. I think also still in most faith institutions there's not a lot of dialogue about climate change. And I think that's a huge opportunity, especially as more and more people are grappling with this topic, with what's ahead in terms of climate impacts and how that may impact our, our communities and beyond. And I think those spaces for sort of holding difficult questions and building community may play a really important role in much the way that they have in other moments of transformative social change. And I think similarly, faith has helped in other social movements to paint a picture of what we are working towards, not just what we are working against. I think the climate movement has really struggled with that. It's been exciting to see some shifts in that start to happen, I think, particularly from the perspectives that youth leaders are bringing to the movement right now. One of the reasons that I'm so drawn to religious organizing and narratives is because they are stories. They're these powerful stories that shape how we see the world, how we find meaning, how we live our lives. And she's totally right. Like that is something we are missing on kind of the progressive end of the spectrum, even and maybe especially within the climate movement is what are these stories, these kind of parables, these ways of looking at the world that give us a direction forward, that give us a sense of meaning and and help us kind of wrestle with and answer some of these really big, hard questions about what it means to be a human right now and the world that we're trying to create. I think that's one of the reasons I'm increasingly drawn to more of the storytelling work within the climate movement is whether or not it's doing it through the lens of spiritual stories or faith perspectives, or it's just thinking through like, what are these stories that the climate movement and artists and all of our, you know, our kind of community of people who deeply care about the future of the earth and the health of the earth right now, you know, what are the stories we should be telling? And, and that's partially, I think, why we want to do this season was to explore what kind of spiritual wisdom and stories can we find strength and courage in. I so agree with you, Anna Jane, both about taking a look at our stories and our storytellers. And one of the things that I talked to Catherine about, I think she actually says it best in her own words. So can I just read you this call to arms for better climate leadership, a little excerpt from a, a website called The Elders? Yes, please go for it. All right, here is here's Catherine's excerpt. The climate crisis is a leadership crisis. We need leadership that's more conventionally feminine and more faithfully feminist. I see women and girls bringing their whole selves to this movement. Fear, grief, fiery courage, racking uncertainty, all of it, and doing the inner work that often precedes affecting change. 
The climate crisis has inescapable psychological and spiritual dimensions. What's so powerful about integrating head and heart, it's where moral clarity, scientific rigor, and imagination meet. It is what allows us to sustain bold aspirations and insist upon the action that's necessary. So it was a beautiful passage, um, and I asked Catherine about it. What it brings up for me, actually, is... So after I finished my PhD and did the work of rewriting it, which is just a horrible task, um, into that book, Between God and Green, I really stepped back almost completely from the climate movement, from climate work for a few years. And part of that was my own sort of vocational grappling. And I also think part of it was being heartbroken and not knowing how to hold that in the climate space, especially when, you know, a decade ago, it felt even more bro-y, right? Um, Like this was a place for policy, but this was not a place for feelings. (laughs) I can affirm um, that. (laughs) I can affirm that. (laughs) Yeah. What was really interesting, who knows if this was just purely happenstance, but right before I was asked if I would like to to join Project Drawdown and uh, do the work of bringing that book to life, I went on a retreat with Parker Palmer, who is a longtime Quaker teacher, author. It was a, a gathering of quote unquote, young leaders and activists. I think it was the space that I had not had to feel into what Parker calls the tragic gap, um, or just feel like I was in the tragic gap with other people, right? And the tragic gap, as he talks about it, is the space between what is and what could be, right? And there is so much work to do to stay in that space, to not turn away and kind of, you know, shut down into being willfully blind or or sort of flipping out into sort of out of the tragic gap into utter pessimism or on the other side into starry-eyed, like, well, it'll all be all right, right? But actually to do the work to stay there and look at what's hard and and cultivate a vision of what could be. That experience really cemented for me the need to do the work the inner work if I wanted to do the outer work in the climate movement or in the climate space. I've really have carried that with me these last few years. And I think I'm I'm still figuring out right, how to do the work, how to, how to stay in that tragic gap and to keep going. I think we don't talk about it enough. And I think we certainly don't have enough spaces for circling up together. Maybe that's a circle of two people, <laughs> you know, to to support each other humanly and, and emotionally as we keep trying to manifest change. Cultivating a vision of what could be. I really feel like that is our work. And I'm I'm so excited to be in this circle of two with you, Marianne, and also with all of our listeners. I hope that they feel like they have a, a human and emotional space to explore the tragic gap of, of where we are and where we could be. Well, we are inviting more and more people into our circle of two as we invite our listeners in. And we're so glad that everyone is along for this journey. And as Catherine talked about this inner work that we need to do to kind of bring our best selves to meeting this challenge, 
doing that work in some kind of community is the other side of the coin. I feel like you can do the work, but if you're doing it alone, it's not the same as doing that work in some kind of community. And yet, you know, a lot of people are turned off by organized religion and some people have found a place there, but other folks have not. And I think it's just really important to to underscore what Catherine's talking about here, which is that the circles don't have to be religious. They don't have to be spiritual. They just need to provide some kind of emotional space and support to one another. And she says, if you don't you know, find that when you go looking for it, you can also create that support network yourself. Perhaps the thing that has been kind of the most important anchor for me over the last few years, uh, I don't know, six or seven years now, I'm part of a, a monthly circle in Atlanta that is not climate focused, but it is really a space for going inward, uh, coming outward into connection and, and relationship. It's been sort of my like non-religious spiritual nourishment. I think really before becoming part of that group, I didn't know how to take care of my own spiritual needs in the absence of having a faith tradition that sort of worked for me, right? As I have thought about, well, what am what am I learning there? What am I experiencing there that could come into more explicitly into climate spaces or conversations? That certainly informed a retreat that Ayana and I hosted last summer that you and Anna Jane came to in Montana. Yes, there were aspects of it that were about strategy, but it was also about building community and creating the kind of space where we can show our hearts to one another. And also the the woman who leads this circle in Atlanta is a dear friend and mentor and teacher, and she's a practicing therapist here, David Joy Gauss. And we've been actually starting to work together on something we're tentatively calling the Climate Courage Collective, which is sort of bringing the kinds of experiential therapeutic approaches that she uses to connect on the topic of climate, because for the first time in all of her many years of practicing in therapy, people who are not climate activists um, or professionals are coming with those topics top of mind. So it's sort of an interesting collaboration. We'll, we'll see where it goes, but we hope to test some of that later this year. I am totally here for a Climate Courage Collective founded on good therapy and practices about navigating climate anxiety. I think... It is abundantly clear to pretty much everyone that this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem, not only the actual physical impacts of climate change, but the emotional warfare of kind of living in the world at this moment. I think we absolutely need more community and more resources and support and therapy and friends to help us get through it. Well, and for those who did not catch the last season of No Place Like Home, the whole focus of that season was on the emotional and psychological dimensions of climate change. So go check out those episodes. What I loved that Catherine brought to this um, was the way she's just not just devoted her heart and mind to figuring out how we tackle climate change with the Drawdown Project, but as we're doing it, how we care for one another, you know, spiritually, emotionally in the process. It's been missing from the climate movement and just from a lot of like modern life, I think, how we emotionally and spiritually take care of ourselves and each other as we're navigating these big, scary things in the world. And a big part of that is, is the ability to be raw and vulnerable and honest with each other. 
Yeah, that is something that she writes and thinks a lot about. And part of that is the need for a new kind of leadership, frankly, for more female leadership. As we heard in the passage that I read earlier, and then we went deeper on the topic, you know, she really feels that we have got to embrace the emotional strength that women possess alongside our ability to build community from the bottom up and not just from the top down. Yeah, I I think we've been, maybe the easiest way to say it is just that we've been missing a wholeness of our humanity in this conversation. I don't think that women are sort of biologically more equipped for that, but I do think that we are socially more equipped for that. Many of the crises that we're facing around the world are tied in some way or another to toxic masculinity, patriarchy, the sort of privileging of the masculine and kind of casting aside of sort of the divine feminine, feminine wisdom. I don't think that the ways of operating that got us here are going to get us out. Um, I think we really have to birth another way of being on this planet for whatever reason. I, you know, I, I look around at climate leaders and I see a lot of women bringing that, right? Being comfortable bringing science and story, (laughs) being comfortable engaging in art and activism, being willing to sort of put on their hardcore policy hat and then also tap into sort of deeper philosophy and also to set ego more aside. Um, I think, you know, the climate movement, like everywhere else, has been really hindered, particularly by the battling male egos. And I think these more collaborative, relational, supportive community building approaches are really important. Hmm, just listening to her talk about that, like my soul just felt a little bit more nourished and soft. I think, like I was saying at the top of the show, feeling a little bit of the blues lately has a lot to me. It has to do with, are you being productive? What, you know, are you being successful? You know, it's very tied to my identity around traditional capitalism and patriarchal values of what it means to be a human and a valuable human. That's how we got into this mess, was this sort of top-down, you know, you are a machine that has to output a certain amount of things instead of, like, really looking at the full humanity of each other and ourselves. And I love moving away from this sort of calculating transactional form of campaigning and organizing and really thinking about how we do build community and spiritual, you know, nourishing practices and resources and I'm, I'm super excited about uh, watching Catherine and, and working with you and, and figuring out how to better develop those parts of myself, because I, I do think they're really necessary in this moment, that kind of divine feminine leadership. Well, and I think another thing that I took away from this conversation is, you know, no matter why you're listening to this podcast or how long you've been working on this issue, there is a climate leader inside each and every one of us. To do this work, we need support and we need community and we can create those circles. We can create those networks as we grapple with this huge looming crisis. You know, one thing I said to Catherine when we were talking, you know, we're all walking around with broken hearts for for the state of our world. And uh, a lot of people don't have a spiritual community. And traditionally, that is the place where you take your broken heart is to your, your spiritual community. 
whether that is a community of faith for listeners out there or whether that's a community that you need to build, maybe it's time to to find those communities and seek our own strength there and see them as sources of of climate action because it's going to take every single one of us. So thank you, Catherine, for all this wisdom and insight. And thank you, Anna Jane, for this great conversation. Mm, Thank you, Marianne and Catherine. It has been beautiful. Thanks to the great band River Wireless for our theme music and thanks to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. We are distributed by the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. This episode was produced by Allison Wilson. Y'all, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there too. That really helps get the word out and helps other people find the show. And join the conversation between episodes by following us on Twitter at NPLH Podcast. And remember... There is no place like home.